Hey mama, we see you. All the visible and invisible work you do for others and yourself. That's why this Mother's Day, the Meditation for Women podcast has a special free guided meditation just for you. Stay to listen to hundreds of guided meditations available for you. Some to help you sleep, start your day, release anxiety, and tune into your intuition. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Mother Country Radicals. Hello, this is Brandine Dorn. I'm going to read a declaration of a state of war. My mom becomes an activist and a leader of Students for a Democratic Society, the largest student protest organization in American history. SDS is not, and the movement in this country is not something that exists during the school year and is going to start up again in the fall. We're going to be on the streets and in every institution in this country from now on. And then she splits the organization apart. And the discussion was going back and forth and back and forth. And literally, Bernadine stopped the discussion. And she said, there's no discussion. White youth must choose sides now. We must either fight on the side of the oppressed or be on the side of the oppressor. In the summer of 1969, Bernadine is 27 years old, just back from her trip to Havana. She and the new Radical Weatherman organization are ready to build a revolution. Here in America. This is the way we celebrate the example of black revolutionaries who first inspired us by their fight behind enemy lines for the liberation of their people. Never again will they fight alone. At this point, the leader of the Illinois Black Panthers is Chairman Fred Hampton. Fred is just 20 years old, six years younger than Bernadine, but he's already an important figure in the movement. She looks up to him. All the weathermen do. You know, he was the boss. <laughs> he was the leader. Fred's office is just a few blocks from hers on the west side of Chicago. And SDS is part of Fred's rainbow coalition of activist groups. A lot of people don't understand the Black Panther Party's uh, relationship with white mother country radicals. But what we're saying is that there are white people in the mother country that are for the same types of things that we are for, and we said that we would work with anybody and form coalition with anybody that has revolution on their mind. The Panthers use SDS's printing press for their flyers. They speak at each other's meetings, share what they know about good lawyers and potential undercover cops. They're friends, comrades. And by 1969, the Panthers are under attack from the police and the FBI, targeted with illegal surveillance, arrests, even violence. Bernadine wants her newly formed weatherman group to do something, anything, to help. We called it opening another front, you know, pulling in the attention of the Chicago police away from the Panthers. So she calls for a big national action, the Bring the War Home demonstration, later known as the Days of Rage. Thousands of young radicals will converge on Chicago, ready to take to the streets and fight the cops, take over downtown, the shopping district of the Magnificent Mile, and show the world America's children are opening up another front of the war here at home. This is Chapter 2, Days of Rage. My mom is an important part of this story, but I haven't yet mentioned my dad, and he's a big part of it too. So I'm going to back up for a second here to introduce him, even though to most people He's probably the most familiar name in the group. 
which is still surprising to me because he wasn't as well known as my mom for most of my childhood. He was a teacher, a writer, a professor of education. She was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. My dad was more low profile. Wanted, but not most wanted. That all changed in 2001, when he published a memoir, Fugitive Days, about his years underground. The New York Times ran a profile to coincide with the book's launch. It had a picture of my parents on the steps of our row house under the headline, No Regrets for a Love of Explosives. What he actually said in the interview was, I don't regret setting bombs. I feel we didn't do enough. The date? September 11th, 2001. It got a lot of coverage on Fox News. Radical Bill Ayers. Of the weather people. The man behind one of the most violent radical groups of the 1960s and 70s. Unrepentant about bombing the Pentagon, the Capitol, New York City Police Headquarters. And then in 2008, at the height of the presidential primary campaign, the story got even bigger. Hillary Clinton attacked Barack Obama during a debate over his connection to my father. That Obama had held one of his early fundraisers in our living room and that he and my dad had served on the board of a nonprofit together. He's reported comments, and he said that he was just sorry they hadn't done more. And what they did was set bombs. And in some instances, people died. And then when Barack won the primary, Sarah Palin got in on the act. Our opponent is someone who sees America as imperfect enough to pal around with terrorists who targeted their own country. David Axelrod, who managed Obama's campaign, says Barack saw it coming. He understood, you know, what his relationship was with Bill and Bernadine. Barack was friendly with them. We weren't going to run away from that. They wanted to turn him into a scary, uh, radical black man. And so Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, famous names from the radical past were resurfaced for that purpose. Of course, very few people outside the politically plugged-in campaigns had any idea who William Ayers actually was. What made him a terrorist? Why was he unrepentant? And what was he supposed to be repenting for? My dad is very different from my mom. If she's reserved, strong-willed, and intense, he's the opposite. Outgoing, talkative, and playful. He's good with kids, a born teacher. In fact, he was my teacher. When we were underground, I went to this scruffy alternative daycare on the Upper West Side of Manhattan called BJ's Kids. That's us singing about how witches are actually good, midwives and wise women. It was that kind of school. And that's me, unable to carry a tune. And Bill, because he needed a job, because they didn't ask for a social security number, because he wanted to stay close to me and my little brother, maybe. Maybe because he'd once been a teacher himself. He took a job at the daycare. So those are my first memories of him, sitting on the carpet, bunch of toddlers crowded around, reading books, singing songs. I remember him being happiest, most at ease, most himself, when he was teaching. But of course, teaching was just his day job. We were still underground. He'd been a full-time revolutionary for over a decade. 
outside of school, Phil taught me how to recognize FBI agents and undercover police. If you see a white guy and a black guy together in an unmarked car in Harlem, definitely cops. See how the car has a fancy antenna, but no hubcaps or chrome strip down the side? That's NYPD. They buy in bulk, stripped down, souped up radios, but nothing ornamental. So if I noticed a car like that on our block, I was supposed to let my parents know right away. I remember when I was a kid, I must have been about five or six. I didn't, didn't even know at that time, really, that you guys had planted bombs or any of the rest of it. But I remember asking you if you'd ever been in a fight. And you said yes. And I said, did you ever punch anybody? And you said yes. And I was shocked by that. And partly I remember it because I remember your response, like you didn't really want to talk about it. And, you know, for me, picturing my dad hitting somebody was kind of hard to imagine. Do you remember what you were talking about there? I don't, but um, but the contradiction that you felt me experiencing is familiar to me and is familiar to you as a father now because what you want to do is be both honest with your children and you want to protect your children. You want them to know something about the world, but you want don't want them to know too much too soon. And so every one of us finds ways to lie to our children. So there's a mystery, even for me. How to reconcile the person I know, I've always known, fun, loving, easygoing, with William Ayers, unrepentant terrorist. How does a born teacher turn himself into a revolutionary? So in this episode, we're going to follow Bill and the Weathermen as they go back to school. To learn how idealistic young people Students, school teachers, Quakers, and community activists teach themselves to be revolutionaries. How they gear up for the days of rage protest and get ready to brawl with riot cops on the streets of Chicago. The process was a bit ridiculous and also deadly serious. And it explains a lot, not just about my family, but about the process of radicalization itself. How ordinary people can be taught to do something they weren't born to made capable of action they never even imagined. And how easy it is to lose yourself, to be swept away by the crowd and do something you regret. Because trust me, everyone has regrets, even an unrepentant terrorist. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. 
and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. In 1965, while my mom is in Chicago hearing Dr. King speak for the first time, my dad, Bill Ayers, is a student at the University of Michigan and the son of a corporate executive. He's just 20 years old when he's arrested for the first time in Ann Arbor for protesting the Vietnam War. He spends 10 days in county jail. While I was locked up, I met a man whose wife was part of a group that had started a small freedom school affiliated with the civil rights movement. And it sounded intriguing. Most people, after spending a week and a half in a cell, would probably want to take a nap or a shower. But the first thing Bill does when he gets out is visit this school. And he's drawn in by the kids right away. But what captivated me was their energy, their enthusiasm, their open-mindedness. They weren't anybody's, uh, you know, project to improve. One of the things I remember vividly is that I came out of that first morning with green paint all over my face and my glasses. And my glasses had green paint on them for the next year and a half or two years until I got a new pair. I was marked from the beginning. He drops out of college, starts working at the Ann Arbor School as a teacher full time. And at the same time, he meets a girl. She was three years older than me, and she seemed to carry herself with a lot of authority and um, experience. It's not my mom. Diana Outen is a graduate of Bryn Mawr College, just back from volunteering with the American Friends Service Committee, a Quaker version of the Peace Corps. She's been teaching in indigenous communities in Guatemala. She starts teaching at the free school, too. And the kids love her. Every picture I have in my memory is a picture of Diana sitting in a corner or against a wall with five kids piled on her. Kids were drawn to her. She was warm. She was kind. She was gentle. And she was uh, beautiful. She's also hardworking and unpretentious. She's always in a t-shirt and jeans spattered with paint, just like Bill. And we were co-workers for a long time before we became lovers. Eric Mann was friends with both of them at the time. You know that Diane and Bill both came from very wealthy families, right? And kind of ruling class families, and they were both wasps. And what's funny about it is when I met them, they were very joyous. I mean, they really were into this yay kid stuff, you know? He means teaching. Diana has a button made to wear on her jacket that says, kids are only newer people. And she hands them out to the other teachers and staff at the school. It sounds exactly like the kind of thing my dad would say, the kind of button he would wear. And also, like him, Diana can be uncompromising. Eric remembers one time they went to a restaurant. Something happened that they thought was racist. Maybe somebody says something, or a black family doesn't get seated quickly enough. In any case, Bill and Diana react. So they said, all right, we're getting out of here to protest racism. 
And the waitress came out and said, wait a minute, you didn't pay. And I said, we got to go back and pay the woman. That's not right. We, we, I mean, you can't protest racism by not paying your bill. <laughs> and Diana said, she has to pay for racism. White people have to pay for racism. There's also a third member of their little group of teachers, Terry Robbins, who would become my dad's best friend. And even compared to the rest of them, Terry is hardcore. Terry had an intensity that was just shattered glass. He's manic, never sleeping, reading everything. He wore glasses. He always had a cigarette in his mouth. And he was generally speaking, moving fast and and always straight ahead. I'll tell you one story that stands out for me about Terry is that, you know, we would argue about things all the time. It's 1966. They're staying at a dorm one night for a political meeting in Iowa. They're both part-time organizers as well as teachers by this point. And Bill and Terry disagree about what role white activists should have in the black freedom movement. Terry says white people have every right to be leaders, to identify problems in communities and help fix them. The idea that somehow you're going to be the helper and the savior and not and not understand that the people with the problems are the people with the solutions struck me as weird. So they go back and forth on this for a while. Finally, Bill is worn out. He turns off the lights, goes to sleep. But Terry stays up. He was gnawing on the problem and really, really sweating it out. And by the time Bill wakes up in the morning, first thing he said to me is, I've changed my mind. I've decided I have to not just organize myself out of a job, but organize myself out of my life. To me, this sounds dark. But Bill thinks it's funny. Terry's like that, all about the grand gestures. We have to do more, sacrifice more. Pretty soon, their little group, Bill and Diana and Terry, they don't have time for teaching anymore. Bill's the director of the Freedom School by this point, but he's so busy organizing against the war, he stops paying attention to upkeep and fundraising. And by 1968, the school shuts down. And this seems like a key moment to me, that he chooses to give up the thing he loves most, the thing he's best at. He's young, idealistic. He wants to make a better world. But teaching does that too, right? Unambiguously, nonviolently. So why walk away from that? Did it feel like a loss to, that, that you were no longer teaching? I think there was a sense of loss, but also a sense of purpose. We used to always think, you know, we're well known, we Americans, for loving our children. We love them so much, and we don't give a damn about anybody else's children. You know, and then thinking about Vietnamese children, and they were also children, and they also deserved to live, and our country was destroying them. So this is the big leap. You spend your days taking care of kids, kids who were well-fed, safe, and protected. And at the same time, you know your government is killing kids just like them on the other side of the world. And if you really believe those kids are just as important, just as precious, maybe teaching feels like it's just not enough. So now Bill, Diana, and Terry are full-time activists. They join SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, helping to organize against the war. And they're part of the 1969 SDS convention when Bernadine leads her walkout, part of the new weatherman faction. 
They all decide to be real revolutionaries. We have to get more militant, harder-edged, get rid of our softness, our gentleness. And so what we were doing was trying to learn how to fight so that we could fight white supremacy and not just this or that individual racist, but a whole system. And so we knew we had to be tougher than we were. Eric Mann could tell something about his friends had changed. One thing that's interesting about both Diana and Cherry, actually, is they were, when I first met them, they were very kind people, you know, very funny and open. And they did get hardened. They did feel, after a while, like other people must pay. Remember white people have to pay for racism? Now it's other people must pay. And this seems important to me, too, because there is something seductive about that feeling of righteousness. When you feel like you're the ones doing the work, you're on the front lines, so it must be the other white people, the racist white people, who have to settle your debt. So this is where we left off with my mom in the summer of 1969. Bernadine has just called for a big militant protest, the Days of Rage action. And Bill gives a speech laying out the plan. This fall, in Chicago, we will lead massive demonstrations against the war in support of the Black Panther Party and in solidarity with all political prisoners. There's just one problem. We didn't have a roadmap for how to do it. We really barely had any models. We looked to the third world to see what we could pick up. So we began to do things like learn how to do karate and learn how to shoot pistols and learn how to um, make smoke bombs and learn how to make dynamite bombs. As they prepare for the upcoming Days of Rage protests, the weathermen dedicate themselves to training, full-time. They read books, The Wretched of the Earth, On Guerrilla Warfare, The Mini Manual of the Urban Guerrilla. They watch films, too. The Battle of Algiers, Bonnie and Clyde, This year's Miss Bonnie Parker, I'm Clyde Barrett. We rob banks. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. no rules. All about outlaw rebels going out in a blaze of glory. But they need practice, too, like real-world experience. So they piece together a sort of DIY training program. You know, partly you educate yourself to be a street fighter by being a street fighter. We'd be up at 5.30 in the morning in a public park practicing karate, and, you know, older women would be walking by kind of looking at us patronizingly. Kind of a funny image bunch of wannabe revolutionaries, skinny kids dressed in secondhand clothes, jogging around, doing martial arts in the park. It's like urban guerrilla cosplay. But weather woman Kathy Boudin says this was basically a full-time job. We said that you can only sleep every other night because we have so much to do and so much change to make in ourselves. Most of it is mental work, rethinking every part of their lives, what they read, what they eat, even who they sleep with. There was just so much experimentation with sex, sex with women, sex with men, sex in orgies, all of that. Many weathermen have dropped out of college. These are still their undergraduate years. And these are kids who'd grown up in the 1950s with all the boring expectations about gender roles, monogamy, no sex until marriage. For me, and I think for many other women, it was kind of a freeing experience. Eleanor Stein is a cadre member in New York. 
When she joins Weathermen, she's married to her teenage sweetheart. Relationships with men and how much power men had over us in big ways and small ways had limited us. For Eleanor, smashing monogamy is a feminist gesture. It shows her being married isn't something you have to do just because you're a woman. You have agency. You can do what you want. And uh, I left a relationship. It was voluntary. I wasn't forced to do it, but I was, I was pushed to do it. I don't look back on that as a terrible thing. But for others, like Kathy Wilkerson, the sexual free-for-all feels oppressive. It was confusing because a lot of weathermen were women. So it, it was not immediately apparent to me the profound kind of sexism that existed in it. Men could sleep with whoever they wanted to, whenever they wanted to, basically. So while free love sounds great on paper, in weathermen it could veer into dark territory. Some members feel pressured. Others who are coming out as queer feel judged. But to many weathermen, sex with comrades builds a bond breaks down the selfishness of individuality, makes you part of the collective. It is a bit ridiculous, but there's also something serious about people dedicated to changing the world starting that process by changing themselves. They want to be serious. They just don't know how. How do you transform yourselves, get rid of your bourgeois hang-ups, your racist or sexist upbringing and unconscious bias? For the weathermen, they take another page from international revolutionaries concept of criticism, self-criticism, came out of the Chinese Communist Party. Eric Mann, Bill's friend from SDS, now leads the Boston chapter of Weathermen. It's actually a, a healthy part of every organization, evaluating your work, owning up to your own mistakes. That's all good. But that wasn't what this was about. Let's be very clear. You'd be in the living room of somebody's apartment. There were probably anywhere from 20 to 40 people there. And one poor person in the middle. It was crowded, it was sweaty, it was scary. And usually it would be me or somebody leading the interrogation. I know I found myself several times sitting in the middle of the room on a chair with a circle of people around me asking me these devastating questions. It would start out heavy and get heavier and heavier and heavier. Anything that you might consider a bourgeois hang-up would be criticized because it would be holding you back. There were questions about money, for example. Is that not your white privilege? We saw you going into a movie. Is it not? I don't say it's racism, but it may be bordering on it. You were seen. People were dying in Vietnam, and you did this, and then everybody would jump in, and people would use some personal stuff that they knew about you, you know, against you. Like I was the scum of the earth. And generally the person sort of shrinks into the chair. I felt that it was absurd and that there was no reason why I had to sit there and be subjected to this. And then the group would forgive them, like Catholicism. You know, where you get whipped more, and the more you get whipped, the more you feel like you're becoming purified. I have sinned and I realize all the error of my ways. You just destroy somebody and take them apart and then you put them back together again in your model. I subscribed at the time to the ethic that there was corruption, racism inside of me and that I had an obligation to rid myself of those and that going through this collective process was part of it. You know, I mean, that would be the end of a successful Criticism, self-criticism, the person would be crying, deeply apologetic. 
And then, of course, then everybody could be so supportive because the person had no, not, didn't have a leg to stand on, no self-respect. Bill was involved in all this on both sides. Sometimes he was the one leading the sessions, and sometimes he was the target. One day, after the morning routine, a woman and I, a comrade and I, uh, went to a movie and went and got ice cream. Uh, and I read her a poem. I read her a poem by Brecht. So you who come after, when man can love their fellow man, remember, we made a lot of mistakes, but we lived in the dark ages. And at the collective house that night, the criticism turned to me, and she brought it up, and she said, he read me this fucking poem, we had ice cream, I'm critical of myself, but I'm mostly critical of him, fucking Brecht. I mean, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it is it was soft. I mean, how dare you? You know, get busy and get down to earth and, and don't, uh, don't be a, a wimp who's kind of saying, forgive me for my harshness. Get harsh, motherfucker. And that was heartbreaking. And I immediately said, thank you for your encouragement and got right back in line. What's striking to me now is how different this is from the way he talks about teaching. As a teacher, as a parent, my dad's always been about freedom, letting kids experiment letting me experiment, trying to encourage risk-taking and creativity. And criticism, self-criticism is the opposite. It's about breaking someone down, erasing individuality, like basic training or hazing in a fraternity, or the worst of today's call-out culture, pointing out errors in orthodoxy, deviations from the group. To me, it seems like the opposite of good teaching. It doesn't help people learn or grow just forces them to conform. Eric Mann agrees the criticism, self-criticism sessions were a mistake, but he also sees it another way. So what? Did you die? I mean, yes. You know, people, are, they're shooting black kids today, today, all over the place. That's the worst you had is a bad self-criticism session? You know, get over it. He has a point. While the weathermen are busy changing themselves, their black and brown allies are being arrested, threatened with violence, harassed by police and the FBI. Fred Hampton and the Panthers are just trying to figure out how to survive. And with the days of rage protests just days away, Bill and the other weathermen can feel the stakes arising. I can remember actually moments um, walking down the street and thinking we're all gonna be dead next year and thinking, do I wanna go through with it? And thinking, yes, I do. The weathermen have promised to bring the war home. So it stands to reason the first action has to start with something big, something dramatic, something the police can't ignore. It starts with a bomb. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Terry carried around an old clipping from a 1947 Life magazine he liked to show people. 
I have a copy of it with me now. It's a news story about a five-year-old kid, Marion Delgado, who derailed a train by putting a slab of cement on the tracks. A kid's prank. But it knocked this train off the tracks, damaged a Western Pacific Railroad engine. And in the picture, it doesn't look like an accident. This kid, Marion Delgado, hunches over a railroad track, holding up a chunk of concrete. And he's grinning into the camera. He's proud of himself. All under the headline, Boy Wrecks Train. Terry loved it. For him, the kid became a kind of lunatic mascot, an icon of anarchistic mayhem. Marion Delgado, Terry would say, live like him. And this became a weatherman's signature, an inside joke, part of the lingo and their founding myth. It was a code word. You could call somebody on the phone and say, this is Marion Delgado, and the person on the other end would know right away you were part of the group. But that all comes later. In 1969, what Marion Delgado means to Terry and Bill is simple. You don't need an army. Just one kid with a well-placed rock could take down the entire system. Terry comes up with an idea. He wants to blow up one of Chicago's most notorious monuments to police power. This big bronze statue of an old-timey cop standing on top of a 12-foot marble pedestal in Haymarket Square. A memorial to the confrontation between police and radical anarchists a century earlier. The cop has a mustache, old-fashioned custodian helmet, his hand raised like he's saying, halt. The inscription on the pedestal reads, In the name of the people of the state of Illinois, I command peace. When Terry suggests blowing it up, everyone in the group is into it right away. So we had joked about it for years that we were going to knock that statue over. But bringing down a statue is hard. You can't just put a rope around its neck and pull it down. Usually it's in concrete. It's bolted down. So as usual for this bunch of college kids, they start studying. In terms of making bombs, I mean, I honestly think that we were learning from uh, looking at a textbook. It is a literal textbook. The Blaster's Handbook, 15th edition. I have a copy of this, too. It's put out by the DuPont Chemical Company, intended for commercial use by construction and coal mining firms. And it advertises itself with the Don Draper-style tagline, from America's oldest explosives company come the newest explosive ideas. A few of the weathermen start reading up, and they assemble this crude device about the size of a flashlight. We had a few sticks of dynamite. They looked like highway flares, and we had these blasting caps that looked like little aluminum things with wires sticking out of them. And finally, they're ready. They think. October 6, 1969, two nights before the Days of Rage protest. My dad's not there for this action. Neither is Diana. But what Terry tells them is he and three other weathermen drive out to the Haymarket statue. They park five blocks away, around 10 p.m. There was nobody on the street. It was a very isolated industrial part of town. Terry acts as lookout. The others walk up to the base of the statue. One of them cups his hands, gives the foot boost to the other one who puts the device at the feet of the cop, jumps back down. And once they light the fuse, they have only a few minutes to get away. And they take off running. They're worried. This is their first time. 
They don't really know what they're doing. What if they've miscalculated? What if the explosion is too big or too small or it doesn't go off at all? They get inside the car, slam the doors, and then they feel it before they hear it. The dynamite shatters windows for blocks around and knocks the statue off its pedestal. To this day, my dad calls the Haymarket action and all weathermen bombings extreme vandalism, not terrorism. They're targeting objects, not people. And it's true no one was hurt by the bomb. But it's also true that dynamite is different from pulling down a statue with ropes and chains, or even putting a piece of concrete on a train track. This isn't vandalism. It crosses a line. It's meant to cross a line. Chicago police hold a press conference. And uh, we wonder now what'll happen. Uh, Now it's a statue. Will it be a policeman performing his duty tomorrow or what? And for the protesters making their way to Chicago, the young people the weathermen have been working all year to recruit, they wake up on October 7th to headlines about an explosion, a dynamite bomb. And they have to decide, is this really something I want to be a part of? So the next day, Bill leaves his apartment, heading to the rallying spot for the first day of the protest. He meets Diana at the park. They're expecting a big crowd. At least a few thousand people. And we look into the park, it's around dusk. And as we're approaching, we see lines of police. They're in city buses. They're congregated on street corners. There's a line of police around the park. Seems like thousands of police backing those police up. And part of him is thinking, okay, well, maybe we'll still be fine. There are a lot of police, but there are going to be thousands of protesters too. There's something like two or 300 people. The feeling of depression, a feeling of uh, the wind getting knocked out of you is overwhelming because I thought we were gonna go to battle with several troops. And then I realize, oh my God, we're going to battle with just us. And this, of course, is the result of emphasizing escalation over inclusion, splitting SDS, criticism, self-criticism, insisting only the most militant people are welcome. You find yourselves outnumbered and alone. It's kind of a telling moment because part of me wants to run and give up. And part of me says we cannot give up at this point. So a few hundred activists gathered in the park. For all their training, they're still just scared kids. Most have never been in a fight before. A few wear helmets. Others have on football shoulder pads, cups, and jock straps for protection. Everyone's looking around, hoping more people will show up. But it looks like this is it. Tom Hayden, one of the Chicago Seven and co-founder of SDS, tells the weathermen he's with them in spirit. But then he heads home. He won't be there for the action. Then Jeff Jones, this California surfer type, tall, blonde, and handsome, gets up on a bench, and he says, I am Marion Delgado. And we rush out of Lincoln Park heading down through the Gold Coast 
and were roaring down the street. 200 hardcore members of SDS took to the streets. They armed themselves with sticks and chains and rocks and rampaged through the near north side of this city. I see bank windows crashing. People have billy clubs and are smashing windows. And every window that's smashed, a sense of elation rushes through me and through the whole crowd. Every time a window breaks, I feel my legs going to overdrive. We'd see a line of police and aren't exactly sure what to do. And we just plow right into them. They are as shocked as I am. We've gone wild. We aren't arrested that night. And so we live the fight another day. But that night, I'm not sleeping at all because I'm going to the safe houses that we've organized. I'm finding one comrade with a shotgun wound in her leg, several comrades with their heads split open. That was the first night of the Days of Rage, and it went on for four days. By the end of the week, pretty much everyone who participated is in jail. Jeff, Diana, Bernadine. Lots of broken bones, cuts, some gunshot wounds. Mayor Daly is furious. What right has anyone to walk down the street with a uh, chain in their hand or a club, which we saw last night used on the fleece, or an iron pipe? You know quite well that they're not uh, playing hockey, unless they're playing hockey with someone's head. And Black Panther leader Fred Hampton isn't happy either. He tells ABC News... We think it is anarchistic, opportunistic, individualistic, it's chauvinistic, it's uh, uh, customistic, and that's the bad part about it. It's customistic in that it's leaders take people into situations where the people can be massacred, and they call that revolution. When Mayor Daley and Fred Hampton agree on something, that's pretty much a unanimous verdict. Even my dad is ambivalent. When he looks back now on the days of rage, as a parent and as a teacher, He feels like maybe he missed a warning sign. I remember saying to you again and again as a teenager, beware of the crowd because it will allow you to do things like hurt women or like insult people on the street or like, because you're in a crowd and you're goofing with each other. But the other thing is the crowd lets you be brave in a way that you couldn't be brave on your own. And I think again and again of the civil rights actions I was involved in, we would gather in churches in Cleveland, in Detroit, and we would sing, and we would bond, and we would be a group. And then I could go out into the street more fearless than I actually am. I'm a naturally peaceful person, and I don't relish any of this stuff. But I think that there's something good about being in the crowd, about being comrades shoulder to shoulder with others. And there's something potentially absolutely destructive about it. The weathermen are heading into a new stage. Pretty much everyone has charges against them after the days of rage, but they have too much to do now. We were determined not to spend another minute on trials. We didn't want to raise money. We didn't want to pay lawyers. So we said to ourselves, we have to know how to get ID. We have to figure out how to have safe houses. They're making plans to go underground, to build a clandestine revolutionary organization, a series of cells scattered across the country to fight back against the government using more militant tactics. But before they can do that, they have to cut ties to their lives, their careers, their families. 
Bill goes out to dinner with his father. He can't tell him exactly what's about to happen. But my grandpa Tom, he has a sense. And we had a very stressful conversation, but he was almost in tears. And he said, you're on the brink of something terrible. He didn't know we were going underground. I didn't exactly know either. But I knew we were in the sights of the FBI, and I knew we were, and I knew he knew that we were um, in deep trouble and uh, could be in even deeper trouble. And he begged me not to take the next step. I think about what my dad said to me. You don't want your kids to know too much too soon. And this feels like the opposite. Like his dad is trying desperately to tell his son what he knows as an adult, to stop him from making a life-altering mistake before it's too late. A year later, the police monument in Haymarket Square was blown off its pedestal again. This time, by a much bigger bomb. A high-velocity explosive that ripped off both its legs and sent them flying across the freeway. The explosion could be heard for miles. That night, the Chicago Tribune received an anonymous call from somebody calling himself Mr. Weatherman. We just blew up the Haymarket Square statue for the second time to show our allegiance to our brothers in the New York prisons and our black brothers everywhere. This is another phase of our revolution to overthrow our racist and fascist society. Power to the people. Bring the war home had started as a slogan, a metaphor. We have to show people what it's like to have warlike violence on the streets of an American city. But the metaphor had taken on a life of its own, its own momentum, its own imperative. Once you accepted the logic of constant escalation, it was hard to know where to stop. The U.S. was dropping more than 2,000 tons of bombs every day on Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, ultimately killing more than a million Vietnamese, men, women, and children. So what would it mean to bring that war home, here, into the mother country? It meant their next target wouldn't be a statue. Next time on Mother Country Radicals. The FBI comes after the Weathermen and the Panthers, and the two groups have to find a way forward together. We called each other comrades, and we called each other brothers and sisters. We know now from the documents that have been revealed that there was an explicit design to destroy the Black Panther Party. If your dad a struggle, your dad a win. If your dad not a struggle, then goddammit, you don't deserve to win. In New York City, 21 members of the Black Panthers have been indicted, and the police said that broke up an elaborate plan for destruction. And the loss of one of their friends sends the weathermen in a new, more dangerous direction. I was in a rage at the absolute stench of American life. And it was only a matter of seconds, less than five seconds, that I heard shots. For people to be able to enjoy Christmas time in this country without taking action about a blatant murder that takes place in the city against a revolutionary black leader is an obscenity.
Mother Country Radicals is an original podcast from Odyssey and Crooked Media. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm Zaid Ayers-Dorn, your host, writer, and executive producer. From Crooked Media, executive producers are John Favreau, Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta, with special thanks to Katie Long. From Dustlight, executive producer is Misha Youssef. Arwen Nix is our executive editor. Ariana Garib-Lee is our senior producer. Stephanie Cohn is the producer. Ty Jones is our historical consultant. All three also helped with writing on the series. This episode was sound designed by Stephanie Cohn. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Andy Clausen is the composer. For Odyssey, Tim Clark is head of audio content. Lindsey Grant is head of platform marketing. And Brian Swarth leads podcast marketing. Special thanks to Melissa Providence, Lizzie Roberti Denahan, Andy Slater, and Danny Kutrick. Thanks to our development and operations coordinator at Dustlight, Rachel Garcia, apprentice Shamari Kirkwood, and Mark Wilkening, and the team at Chicago Recording Company. Mother Country Radicals is an Odyssey original podcast.